From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, tele-ophthalmology. They demonstrated earlier diagnosis for their patients at a younger age. Um, They've decreased wait times to get into their clinics, and they've increased the amount of known diabetic retinopathy within their patient populations. First this. There's a lot to be said for the printed page. It's always on, loads instantly, it's very high resolution, and there's no monthly fee. But one thing it's not is interactive. I know journals have advertised interactive content and multimedia, but to get to it, you need to type a URL in a computer. iWorld AR changes all that. Once you have the app, you simply aim your phone at an iWorld page with the AR symbol, and videos, interactive material, presentations, and podcasts appear in the page. Amazing! The effect is stunning, and the app is free. Go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and search iWorld AR. That's so great. That's one word with no spaces. iWorld AR. Great job. Search iWorld AR, one word, on the App Store or the Play Store. It's like ophthalmology's secret decoder ring. I do a lot of things. I see patients, I teach residents, I do research, and I podcast. It's tough to fit it all in because I can't be two places at the same time. Or can I? Being two places at the same time is what telemedicine is all about. Telemedicine, the remote delivery of healthcare, holds the promise of multiplying physician productivity and providing physician services in places where they are needed. If you would have asked me about telemedicine last year, I would have assumed you were talking about remote and underserved communities. But after speaking to Siddharth Rafi, my guest today, I understand that underserved may be as close as an ER that is not regularly staffed by an ophthalmologist. I have absolutely no doubt that teleophthalmology is going to be a topic about which there will be growing interest for years, and that we're just at the vanguard now. I'll let Dr. Rothy explain. Before we discuss the inroads that telemedicine is making into ophthalmology, we need to define some terms. What constitutes telemedicine? So telemedicine is the use of electronic uh, information and communication technology to provide health care when there's distance between the patient and the provider. And typically, what needs does telemedicine fill? So there are a couple of different areas where telemedicine can play, but it can range anywhere from screening for patients, um, diagnosis, um, treatment initiation, um, all, all the way to uh, disease, chronic disease monitoring. And depending on the modality and the purpose uh, will affect the, the model of telemedicine that's implemented. And, and in, in what settings has teleophthalmology been attempted? 
so teleophthalmology has been used, uh, you know, pretty widely. I'd say we have the most experience with it in the United States for diabetic retinopathy screening. Um, geographically, though, it's been anywhere from large cities like Boston, where they kind of had one of the initial diabetic retinopathy screening programs, all the way out to Alaska, where they used Storm Forward pretty early, and even in the U.S. Army, where they used... Um, telemedicine to deliver care remotely to soldiers and across the world. What is the deficit in emergency medicine that teleophthalmology may be able to fill and how might teleophthalmology be deployed in an emergency department? Sure. So in the emergency setting, you know, there's some unique challenges. Um, in the United States, about a third of emergency set- emergency rooms are outside of urban areas, and about half of all the emergency rooms, emergency settings, do not have an ophthalmic provider readily available. So you have a lot of patients coming in to, being, to be seen, but there's no ophthalmic professional available. So they're evaluated not by an ophthalmic professional, and if they do need ophthalmic evaluation, they have have to be transferred or the physician has to come in from a remote location. So tele-ophthalmology has the opportunity to bring those expertise to where the patient is and to prevent unnecessarily unnecessary transfers. It can help the local provider, physician or non-physician provider, um, increase their confidence in their diagnosis, start treatment, um, and even help to um, transfer patients and to kind of um, ensure, ensure there are no gaps in care and appropriate patients are transferred and allocating resources efficiently. Now, I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to confuse the topic. I'm going to shift gears just a little bit here. We're going to talk about tele-emergency care. So you, you discuss tele-emergency care in which the emergency physician provides care remotely. Is, is, is there any evidence that this model has improved quality of care? So I would say in the United States, you know, we we don't have much uh, data in terms of outcomes uh, of of telemedicine for ophthalmology. What we do, though, have is kind of initial data coming from the frontline providers. There's a nice study done by a group out at Stanford where they surveyed frontline providers, emergency room physicians and nurse practitioners across the state of California, and they asked them to rate what they thought would be the value of teleophthalmology services. And over two thirds of respondents thought that teleophthalmology would have very high value, if not high value, for the care that they provide. So we know that there's a problem there, and the frontline providers feel like there's a solution that would help them with their treatment. Um, and then, in terms of actual data for telemedicine, ophthalmo- teleophthalmology programs in the emergency setting. The the best study that I can think of is at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, it was a poster that they presented where they had 50 consecutive patients um, that they evaluated using iPhone imaging as well as standard method of care. And what they found was that in 50 out of 50 patients, the remote ophthalmologist made an accurate assessment and triage decision for the patients that were coming in. And what was notable about that um, uh, that evaluation was that 12 out of the 50 patients had the highest severity of an ophthalmic diagnosis, and it was still accurate. This is emergency department tele-ophthalmology that, that you're talking about? Correct. So the ER physician would send an image over to the attending ophthalmologist. So outside of emergency medicine, you discussed the use of tele-ophthalmology for retinopathy of prematurity screening. 
Can I get you to flesh this topic out a little bit for me? Sure. So across the United States, you know, uh, there is a shortage of providers that go into NICUs to evaluate babies for ROP. And what makes it more challenging is the fact that there's often high malpractice liability and just the malpractice liability costs make it challenging for physicians to incorporate this into their routine part of their practice. Um, so, and this doesn't, doesn't just happen in rural areas. It's a problem even in Massachusetts, where if you go outside of Boston, there are NICUs that have difficulty finding ophthalmologists to cover their NICUs to evaluate their babies for ROP. So, tell the ROP how it works is essentially a nurse practitioner or a nurse kind of within the NICU setting uh, takes a fundus image of a baby, sends it over to a remote provider that evaluates the image. If there is evidence of ROP, the baby is typically transferred over to the larger center where an ophthalmologist is available, and they're evaluated in person. But it allows for a lot of babies that don't need to be seen in person to remain at their local NICU, close to their home, be discharged from care, and follow up with the ophthalmologist on an outpatient basis, which is much easier for them to make that trip. One would think that diabetic retinopathy would particularly lend itself to remote evaluation. What what has been the experience of teleophthalmology for diabetic retinopathy screening? Sure. So for diabetic retinopathy screening, you know, we have the most experience in the United States. There have been groups that have been doing it for over 15, probably 20 years. And it really started at the VA system and the Indian Health Services systems, um, where they use diabetic retinopathy screening. And they've really demonstrated um, earlier diagnosis for their patients at a younger age. Um, they've decreased wait times to get into their clinics. And and they've increased the amount of known diabetic retinopathy within their patient populations. So they've really demonstrated that diabetic retinopathy makes it easier for the patient to have the screening that they're supposed to have had. And what's interesting in the last five years, diabetic retinopathy screening has become one of the core quality measures for accountable care organizations. And that's really driven private providers and private or accountable care organizations to care more about diabetic retinopathy screening, and that's led to the proliferation of private companies that facilitate telemedicine for diabetic retinopathy screening and uh, make it much easier for private institutions to do. Sid, what is meant by store and forward? Sure. So store and forward is essentially... Um, asynchronous telemedicine. So images are captured, they're stored, and a physician reads or f- reads the image at a later time point. And this differs from live telemedicine, where typically the provider and the patient interact. With store and forward methods, there's usually no live interaction between the patient and the physician. In a sense, macular degeneration screening is already sort of teleophthalmology because the OCT images are often reviewed in a room separate from the room in which the patient sits. It's not much of a stretch to imagine an ophthalmologist at a completely different location reviewing OCTs. Has teleophthalmology been employed in this context? So in the United States, not not that I know of, there is a lot of interesting being, work being done around the world. In Canada, there's a group where they looked at the use of teleophthalmology to uh, monitor for conversion from dry to wet AMD, as well as for recurrence of neovascular AMD. And what they found was... Uh, basically equivalent uh, di- equivalent times from referral to diagnosis of conversion from w- dry to wet AMD um, for that group you're using telemedicine. Um, but what they did find was for patients who were being monitored for recurrence of neovascular AMD, there was an increase in wait time, sorry, an increase in treatment time from diagnosis uh, using the telemedicine route. So there's some inroads being made there, but definitely some ways to go. 
you discuss teleophthalmology for the management of glaucoma in a different setting from the AMD and diabetic retinopathy patients. Specifically, you discussed monitoring directly from the patient's home. How would that work? So, you know, I think we're probably a little far off from that actually being a reality. But in a setting where you have contact lenses that can measure IOP or even eye care devices that people are using in their house, um, it's not too far of a a leap. And it's actually happening in some pediatric populations where IOP data can be transmitted to the physician who's in a remote location. Um, That data can be evaluated and the physician can determine which of his 20 patients in this panel actually need to come in, make the trip, and which ones can probably be monitored by a local ophthalmologist or local eye care provider. Clearly, teleophthalmology holds the promise of bringing ophthalmic monitoring to sites in which it does not currently exist. But a number of concerns have been raised. Three of the most salient are the decreased confidence that ophthalmologists have making diagnosis based upon static images, the lack of a reimbursement model, and the malpractice liability of making a diagnosis and a treatment plan in in this context. Sure. I, those are kind of definitely valid concerns. I would say to the uh, first one, you know, there that's part of the role of figuring out the best implementation method for teleophthalmology is determining where teleophthalmology is not particularly well suited for. There's a nice uh, study published from University of Michigan recently where they looked at cornea patients and they looked at iPhone imaging versus standard NIDAC imaging. And patients who had iPhone imaging had a lower sensitivity for for diagnosis of corneal pathology compared to NIDAC imaging. So there's definitely, you know, some areas where where telemedicine for ophthalmology isn't as well suited and identifying those kind of early is important to make sure there are no um, bad outcomes with teleophthalmology. Sid, can I get you to address some very, very practical issues, that of a viable reimbursement model and, of course, the liability issue of uh, making diagnoses and, and treatment plans? Sure. So, you know, I think on the reimbursement standpoint, we've come a long way, but we still have a long ways to go. CMS currently reimburses for virtual visits in rural settings, not in urban settings. Um, There are most commercial payers, at least in the New York area, do reimburse for virtual visits. Um, And that's becoming a more and more common trend. So I think we're moving in the right direction, but it's definitely not something across the board uh, where institutions are readily ready to adopt this technology without having to worry about reimbursement. Uh, to your second uh, concern about malpractice cl- liability, um, I think you know there's really a silver lining for telemedicine. What makes it particularly attractive for physicians is you have objective data and objective evidence that in the event of a tort or a claim down the road, rather than having to rely on a possibly subjective note, you actually have an image of what the patient actually looked like that can be brought up and everyone can get a sense of what exactly was happening at that time rather than having to rely on uh, less precise notes or kind of subjective interpretations of what was happening. So I think, if anything, it can be protective for the physician and for the patient. An additional concern is, is that any work that can be performed remotely can be outsourced, initially maybe to, to, to reading centers and perhaps ultimately even to AIs. How concerned should we be as ophthalmologists 
that we're making ourselves vulnerable in the way that radiologists seem to be doing right now. Yeah, you know, I think AI is a really exciting area because of what it offers to us and our patients. I'm not really as much worried about it displacing us from our jobs. In fact, if anything, I think it'll really help us with decision support and helping us to triage our panel of 100 or 1,000 patients and figure out who in my practice, for example, the glaucoma suspects that I have, all five of them, how do I figure out which one is the most likely to progress? And I should maybe be, maybe be seeing that patient twice a year rather than every year. Or for the retina specialist, who, which neovascular AMD patient is more likely to recur in the next two months compared to one that was less likely to recur, and who should they be seeing back? Um, so I think AI, rather than displacing us, really holds an opportunity to help us identify the patients that we can help most and will be a decision support tool rather than something to displace us. Sid, this is great stuff. I want to thank you very much for, for bringing this to us. And, uh, of course, for being so very generous with your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Siddharth Rafi is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the New York University School of Medicine in New York, New York. His paper, The Current State of Teleophthalmology in the United States, appears in the December 2017 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Rafi or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.